Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could know, she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Go in the reading of God's word. So, my friends, we continue our series this morning of seeing Jesus. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Bill gave us an awesome message of how Jesus reached out and touches the leper and heals him in Mark chapter 1. And this morning, we're going to look at a very similar story of healing, uh, but from the opposite perspective. We're going to look at how an ailing woman reaches out to touch Jesus. Now, if you recall in my past sermons, we, all of us, we kind of look at the Lord as a God who is of great power and might. And we also see that he, we acknowledge that he is a God of wrath. But what I want us to gaze on this morning is the sensitivity of our Savior. And our passage this morning is one of the most beautiful displays of the sensitivities of Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful story. Now, how many of you are familiar with this story? I mean, I consider most of you people Bible theologians already. But it's a story that's often, it's told a lot. Uh, but it's still, I never get tired of reading this passage. But what we really have here in our text is a miracle within a miracle itself. If you read all three accounts, it's in Matthew chapter 9, it's in Mark chapter 5, and it's also as in our passage this morning in Luke chapter 8. But this miracle takes place within the context of the raising 
of Jairus' daughter. And it happens like this. One day, Jesus, he's teaching in the synagogues, or in the villages, I should say, along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And a man, a man named Jairus approaches him. And he begs Jesus to come to his house because his 12-year-old daughter is desperately, desperately sick. And as Jesus begins to walk with Jairus towards his house, hundreds of people begin to press upon him, approach Jesus. And many of them doubt, or have, uh, many of them have doubts, hoping for their own cure. You know, they're all approaching Jesus and they have their own ailments and sicknesses. Many others are just listening to every word, just want to capture the wisdom that he has to share with the crowd. But then there are a lot of others who are just gathering just to see what's going on. They're, they're looking for something. You know, what's all this commotion about? Now, if you've ever been to the Holy Land, how many of you have been to the Holy Land? See some hands. So quite a few of you have been there. So the alleyways, they're pretty narrow, aren't they? There, there's not a lot of room there. The streets are narrow. So the scene must have been just absolutely chaotic and confusing. With Jairus on one side of Jesus, tugging at his sleeve, hurry, Lord, my daughter is dying. And you have the disciples, they're forming this moving wave like a bunch of bodyguards for a celebrity. But then there were hundreds of eager people who were pushing and, and milling around and shouting and stretching out their arms to touch Jesus as he passes by. Meanwhile, totally unnoticed, we have a frail, sickly woman who pushes her way through the crowd. Now her face is partially covered, partially veiled so that no one would recognize her. Her arms are thin and her hands are shaking as she reaches out to touch the Savior. And all she's doing is reaching away while Jesus passes by. No one notices as she reaches out to touch Bible isn't real specific about her problem. The translators, they handle it in different ways. King, the King James Version, if you read that translation, says that she had an issue of blood for 12 years. The modern translations speak of a hemorrhage of blood. Most commentators, however, agree that it was some kind of chronic uterine bleeding that this woman had. Now, whether it, it was continual or whether it was periodic, it wasn't normal. In those days, there really there certainly was no, no cure for her condition. Now, in Mark's version of this story, one detail is included that Luke omits. If you ever read the version of Mark 5 in verse 26, it notes that this woman had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. And here's a problem. Instead of getting better, this woman was actually getting worse. Now, here's a question for you. Why do you think Luke left that piece out of his version. What was his profession? He was a doctor, right? So he probably didn't want to shed any unfavorable light upon his own profession. Now, that verse doesn't imply that doctors back then were all quacks, but what it means is that they simply didn't have the effective treatments to deal with that kind of a condition. As a matter of fact, the Talmud, the writings of the Jewish law, literally listed several cures for this type of ailment. Here's three of them I want to share with you. So you, you had one ailment where it said to drink a goblet of wine containing a, a powder composed of rubber, alum, and garden crocuses. Or 
you could eat Persian onions cooked in wine and ministered with the words, Arise out of your flow of blood. Or you can carry the ash of an ostrich egg in a specific cloth. Now, if tears like that, it's no wonder this woman never, never got her condition healed, right? The doctors simply couldn't help her. And over 12 years, she had suffered from this, this bleeding problem. And her prognosis, without a miracle, literally, she had no hope. That wasn't the way for this, because if you read Leviticus chapter 15, if you've ever studied that book, in verses 25 to 27, it contains certain regulations for women who had this uncontrollable flow of blood. Now, the passage says that such women are to be considered unclean and defiled as long as that flow of blood continues. And furthermore, anyone who touched this woman had become an outcast in her own village. And by the law of Moses... The woman was not allowed to touch any human being, and no human beings were allowed to come near her or touch her as well. So the law demanded that this that a woman suffering in this way should be totally segregated. So for 12 long years, this woman had been excommunicated from the temple, from the synagogue, from every religious gathering that took place. She was divorced from her husband. She was shut out from her family. She was ostracized by society, and she was treated as an outcast. She had to endure incurable illnesses. She suffered isolation, social isolation. She was in constant pain. She suffered financial poverty and personal humiliation. When you put all those together, you could not come up with any more pathetic So let's stop for a moment and think how this woman's ceremonial defilement is really a graphic picture of how our sin defiles us. For example, our sin creates distance between us and God. And not only between us and God, but also it creates distance between our friends and our family as well. And often, just like this woman's problem, our sin, it is an embarrassing sort of thing. We don't want our sins broadcast out in the public. We'd rather not discuss it or have anyone know about it. In fact, we clear our throats and we try to change the, uh, the topic or the subject if anyone dares to ask anything that might bring our sins out in the open. And just like this woman's problem, our sin can often be, in fact, always is costly, sometimes very costly. Sins such as drunkenness, we have drug abuse, we have gambling or sexual immorality that can reduce a, a family to poverty, it can cost a person their job, their health, and even ultimately their life. Emergency rooms, if you look around, they are filled with the evidence of this, with victims of sin. You see people who are beaten, who are abused, who are raped or stabbed or shot because of anger or greed or just a total disregard of human life altogether. Just like this woman's disease, our sin is also degenerative. Her disease was slowly killing her, draining her strength and the very life blood from her body. And that's how sin works in our human heart. It starts, you know, really unnoticed at first. It, it doesn't really dawn on us. But eventually, over time, it saps our strength and it leads us toward, towards a slow and certain death if it is not addressed. 
And like this woman's illness, our sin is a hopeless problem apart from God because despite our best efforts, we can't free ourselves from sin. As hard as we may try, it's like climbing up an iceberg slope. You know, for some time, we think we're making progress, then the next thing you know, we trip it and we fall back all the way down to the bottom, don't we? We may compare ourselves with others and think, oh, you know, I'm not so bad. Here's the problem with that. When we recognize that we must compare ourselves, not with other people, but we must compare ourselves with God and His holiness if we want to be accepted into His kingdom, that's when we can fail. But when we realize that, hey, I've fallen short, I can't get any better. There is no limit to our goodness. We are to die to ourselves and need to be sacrificed. We can't cleanse ourselves because there's nothing that we can apply that's going to rid us from our guilt. But here's the question, what do you do? Well, the woman in our passage this morning shows us what we are to do. Now at last, if you look in verse 42, Jesus has come to her village. And we don't know how much this woman knew about Jesus, but that she was part of the multitude that followed him in hopes of being healed. And she probably heard about and maybe she even witnessed some of the miracles that Jesus had performed on other people. Maybe she even knew someone who had been healed just by touching Jesus. The word spreads like wildfire. He's here. He's here. Jesus. Jesus, that man from Nazareth who heals the sick, who just came to town, and Jairus, he's talking to him right now. And with that, the poor woman makes the decision that somehow, some way, she must make her way and get to Jesus. She's obeying and she's obedient. She didn't speak to him because she was embarrassed. She was ashamed of her condition. After 12 years of public humiliation, she didn't want to risk exposure of her condition to, to the constable crowd. She just simply wanted to touch him, receive her healing, and then skip away and go home to her family. After so many years, she was useless. It wasn't her life that changed. Now in verse 44, we see her reaching out to touch the edge of Jesus' cloak. The older translations say that she touched the hem of his garment. Scripture is very clear here, folks, on what happened next as she touched his garment. Two different words are used here. In verse 44, it says that she was healed immediately. Verse 47, it says instantly. So the very moment that she touched his garment, the bleeding He's walking in the opposite direction while Jairus, he's hugging at him and he's talking to him and he's crying all at the same time. Meanwhile, the crowd is so tightly packed in that narrow alleyway that a person could hardly breathe, much less move. And the disciples, you know, what are they doing? They're doing crowd control. So they're getting swept away from the crowd as well. And in the midst of all this, no one sees this poor woman who is standing off to the side. No one notices she, as she elbows her way to the center. Nobody notices. Travels up her arm. Eventually, she's healed of her very body. 
He is at home with tax collectors and with sinners. He is suppers with the gluttons. Jesus asked, who touched me? The woman knows he's talking about her. Luke says that she comes trembling up as Jesus drew up on her. Then she publicly declared what Jesus had done for her and how she had been instantly healed. And I imagine there was, there was probably clapping and, and there was cheering. And Jairus saying, you know, that's great. Praise God. Now, come on, Jesus. My daughter is dying. She needs you. But before they go on, physically and spiritually. Now let's take a few moments to focus on two enduring pictures that remain from the story. They are images of Jesus and of this woman that just really should give each and every single one of us encouragement in our daily walk. First, we see the sensitivity of Jesus. No one ever cared about people like he did. And even to this day, no one does. No one ever gave of himself like he did. No one has ever felt the pain of others like he did. And as he walked down a crowded street, hundreds of hands hands were reaching out to him. And yet, each of the two sickly homeless ladies, that was the one that touched his hand, and felt his touch, and stopped. She turned, and he spoke to her. He wasn't offended or angry with her, nor was he too busy or too tired to bother her. And think about that.
Tim at Rozier, and he's a point guard. For Tillman, he's a basketball, he's a character, just a model of off the aisle pride. He's a huge exercise simple, and I like simple. Second, we see the amazing power of a feeble faith. And in this one, he didn't have a huge faith. I mean, what little faith she had was misdirected in places. But she had a mustard seed. And through it, God used it to move the mountains in her journey. And this story means that we don't have to agonize over the correct way that we need to approach God or come to God. We don't have to worry if our T's are crossed or if our, our I's are dotted. We don't have to worry that we have to know all about the Bible before we come to God. And we don't have to have a degree in theology. And if all truth be told, you don't even have to be a member of a church. Now, don't mistake me. Those things are very, very good. And we should still pursue those. But that's not the point here in the message. And as we come to Jesus Christ in simple faith, even though your faith be as feeble as this woman's was, he will not change your life. So how simple, how easy is it to come to Jesus Christ? Only a cup. Only a cup. And that's not by sight. Not by her efforts. Not by her trying to produce efforts. Not by some kind of a deal with God that says, you know, if I do this, then you can do your part in coming to me. No deal here. She reached out with trembling hand and said, <laughs> give it to me. It's been a long process. In fact, it happened so fast that it could only be called faith can do. Jesus Christ is invincible. But the hardest thing for us is to just accept it. And God takes Jesus the whole way through baptism. That's the power of feeble faith and that's what deserves a light talk. And we don't have to have a talk. We can have a weak faith as long as it's dressed in that faith that God gave us. And I cannot point to anything that God has done as Jesus Christ. The maker of the heavens and the earth. Separated seed was just a flash of his gospel. What he has done. But the faith part is so fast because it's what will he do? You know, I, I looked at some time out this weekend, I looked at the church prayer that Tim Whitfield faithfully sends out every year after our service. Here's what I counted. I counted 36 prayers for help. Five prayers that Tim can pray with. Four prayers for work, God. Three prayers for a stronger relationship with God. Two prayers for material needs. Two for God's guidance. Two for salvation. And one prayer each for relationship and ministry to God and fellow man. Sounds pretty good, right? Well, let me ask you a question. What do you think is our biggest enemy today? It's cancer? No. That was your biggest enemy. What's been our biggest enemy since Adam and Eve? Nothing has changed. But I find it interesting that not one prayer on that list had to do with a sinner before. You can take that in two different ways. Either we're doing pretty good, or maybe we're not doing as good as we think we are. In any case, the encouraging news is we have 54 people reaching out to come to this church for baptism. Friends, whatever your ailment is, bring it to Jesus. Stretch out your hand. Touch his bosom. He loves you as if you were the only person on the earth that he loved. And he's here 